0: Uh, this morning is is such a blessing, and uh, we get a dive back into the Book of Acts. So, if you have uh, your copy of the Word of God, please open it. Uh, open up your app or open up the the pages. I like pages better; they smell better than the phone. So, uh, but uh, anyway, I love my Bible. But if you have an app, turn to that. Turn on Do Not Disturb on your phone, and enjoy the Word of God this morning. As we turn to Acts chapter nine, we're going to do a run through literally run through Acts chapter 9, 10, 11, and 12. I will, if you cry, don't cry foul if I miss your favorite portion. Uh, there's a few points that I'm going to be jumping to, and we're going to be looking at three important points to God's plan I, when it comes to God's plan in building the church. And so we're going to look at only three of, I counted like nine or ten in this, in this section but I wanted to focus on three main, main sections that are crucial. If you have your notes, I'm going to give them to you now. And that is God's grace supernaturally transforms and uses unforeseen instruments. God's grace, we want to remember God's grace, God's unmerited favor. We don't deserve his favor, yet he poured it out to us when he sent his son. To die on the cross. So God's grace supernaturally transforms and uses unforeseen instruments. And then, secondly, that God changes our thinking. If we're going to add and God is going to grow the church, He has got to change our thinking when it comes to His plan. The third thing is that God does not share His glory. God does not share His glory. Um, where we are every aspect of these chapters deal with God's sovereign plan so that's one of the points I will not be focusing on but it is encompassing every aspect of these three points and you can just write that as a circle around it all is God's sovereignty that God it is his plan it is not our plan God knows God understands God knows what we're going through. God sees it all. So we're talking about God putting up a second story. Um, God, there's a fundamental shift when we get to chapter nine, and we're going to talk about that. But if you've ever added on, adding on is a pretty huge undertaking. Uh, we did that at our former house. Um, we we had grand plans. The first plan was to go up. We we're going to have a second story. Uh, the next plan was, well, let's just get the dining room done. Uh, and, and the next plan was, let's see if we can add on to the master bedroom. Uh, the, the idea was to go up and then uh, so that way we can kick all the kids upstairs and, take, and then Anissa and I could take over the downstairs. Uh, you know, but, so it's funny because our plan was huge. And we whittled it down to we just added on to the dining room. And uh, so it was a a 10-foot by 18-foot section. It was huge. That meant we were no longer eating in the living room. So our living room grew. So in one addition, it changed our kitchen, our living room, and we had a dining room. And it was like our house grew doubled in size because every part of our house that we needed to grow grew. And so it was a huge section. And this, this morning, as we look at these chapters, God is, is literally is, is doing a huge remodel in the life of the church, in the plans for the church. And we struggle sometimes with that. And one of the things that when I realize, when, when adding an addition, especially as, as Raul will contest, is when you add a second story, a second level there are some really important questions you got to ask. First one, can the foundation support the second story? Can the foundation? That was one of the first things. Um, and I, I, when I, we were down in California, we went under the house, and I was like, whoa, my foundation, when they built this house in the 40s, they did not skimp out on the concrete. Some of you will understand what I'm saying. They built, the, instead of a 24-inch thir- footer going this way uh, in the foundation, it was 32. Instead of just a 6-inch uh, part of the foundation coming up, it was 8 inches at the top. The inside was slanted all the way down to the 32. 32. When we had earthquakes down there, our house just did not move. It was amazing. I mean, the whole house would move, but things didn't fall like other people's. We were like, oh, we experienced one earthquake, and we were like, oh, it's not, it would, nothing really happened. We went outside, and everybody was outside. We went to the school to play a basketball game, and there was literally pieces of concrete from the school down on the gym floor. I have a piece of it in my office. <laughs> but uh, it was like, oh, I could take a piece of the school with me. <laughs> so the thing was, was that foundation could support a second story. The, the inspector was like, wow, you got an amazing foundation. You could add up if you wanted to. It can support it. That's an important question. The other question is, is what are the additional structural needs? What additional structural n- needs need to h- happen in order for you to add up, you know what, what kind of siding, what, how are you going to tie in, how is that fit to the other studs, how are you, where's the stairs going to go, all of these things that you don't think of, what, where are you going to lose space in your house for the stairs? That was always the argument about us going up in our other small house, where are we going to put the stairs because it's going to cut into something else. And that's a big question. How? What other structural needs do we have? How about what are the additional costs, right? Building a room doesn't necessarily cost that much, right? But it's like, well, what about the siding? What about the, uh, the electrical? What about... There's so many other additional costs that come into play when going up. What are the additional costs? And so... When we think about all those things, it is the same type of picture that God answers in the fact that he is is building up and adding a second level to his plan. The first plan was this, that God was going to bring a Savior through the Jewish people. Which was interesting. All the Jews thought, hey, this is all about us. This is about nobody else. We are God's chosen people and everything is about us. Isn't that interesting? Everything is about us. And think about, it's interesting, in chapter 9, we begin to see that we see that God does some pretty drastic things to fundamentally shift the thinking of that church. Things that we find they're still struggling with in Galatians. Things that we'll find in chapters uh, 12 and 15 that they struggle with. Things that they're like, are you sure this is what you want to do, Lord? And so this morning, as we look at this, we want to look at these three points about God's grace and his instruments. We want to look at how God changes our thinking, and we want to look at that God does not share his glory. So would you pray with me as we begin to dive into his word? Lord, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for... Just looking at how do you grow the church? How, what can we learn from, Lord, from your testimony of what you did in the beginning that we might learn from today? Lord, we recognize that, Lord, I pray that, we, that all of us here realize that this church is yours. That this body of believers, not the building, that all of us here that make up the body of Christ... We belong to you. And Lord, that what we are trying to build is only something that is built on upon you, upon the gospel, upon Christ, and what he did on the cross Through that is only sustained through your power, through the Holy Spirit. So Lord, we pray that you would speak to us this morning, that we would unhinge ourselves from the culture, and Lord, that our focus as we took communion would be on you, that we bring glory to you. Thank you so much for all that you will teach us in, the, in this section of your word this morning. Yeah, speak to us, challenge us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come to chapter nine, there's a huge, there's a, something that happens, it's huge. Uh, as we learned at that, that, there's a foundation, right? that is built upon the gospel. The very first message of Peter is one of the greatest sermons. And 3,000 comes to the Lord through the power of the Holy Spirit. They realize that this Christ was crucified, paid for their sins, that this is the Messiah, the Savior of all mankind, who can transform people from being dead in their sin to being alive in through Christ, having a relationship with God there is no other way we can have a relationship but through Christ and that is the fundamental part of all that God is doing in the church it is the fundamental start of everything and then we saw that the process in which God grows the church is not always like our process he then scattered all the church right he brought Persecution, he brought suffering, so that way the church would be scattered, so that the message of the gospel would go out. Because there was three thousand, or and by that time there was five thousand church members plus in Jerusalem worshiping God, and and the church was just stuck in Jerusalem. But that was not God's plan. God's plan was to expand and to go out. God's plan was not for the church to be stuck in Jerusalem, but to go out to all the world. And I hope that you understand that that was God's plan from the very beginning in Genesis. It wasn't just to stay in one place. In Genesis, we read in, in uh, Acts 9, before we took communion, we saw, that we saw this supernatural meeting on the road to Damascus that Paul, well, Saul, Saul then became Paul. I'm going to make that mistake a lot. But Saul came to a point where he came in, in front of Christ. He was Christ was right there. He had the ultimate experience of understanding who Christ was. Jesus says, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? Or Saul, Saul. Saul was like, who are you? Lord. Saul answered his own question, didn't he? Called him Lord. It was not just Lord as in like master or king, but the Lord. And here's the thing I want you to see as we look at this section where it says that he fell to the ground. He heard the voice. He was confronted with Christ. When he was confronted with Christ, what did he do? Did he just sit there and say... Christ, would you come into my heart? When he was confronted with Christ, what happened? He fell to the ground. He fell to the ground and later on he couldn't even see. It affected him dramatically. Have you been confronted with Christ? Did it dramatically alter your state? Did you come face to face with Christ or do you just know about Christ? See, Saul knew there was going to be a Messiah. in fact, Saul didn't believe in the Messiah it was Christ, but can you imagine what was going through his mind when he realized this is Christ, the risen Messiah whom he was persecuting, whom they sent to the cross? Can you remember when you if you had't this time, a type of confrontation with Christ when you realize that your sin sent Christ to the cross and that you were, your sin was a part of crucifying Christ, that it was your sin that went to the cross and that he died for your sin? Do you remember that and what that was like? One of the things that is over, just overwhelming is that do you realize that salvation does not depend on the fallen will of man. But rather on the sovereign will and power of God. This had nothing to do with Saul's will. This had nothing to do with Saul. What Saul wanted? Saul was breathing breathing out threats against Christians. He was going there to kill Christians. But God had another plan. God's grace supernaturally transformed Saul from going to destroy Christians to going to preaching and making, helping. Be a part of God's plan of making believers in Christ. Isn't that amazing? That God could take the greatest persecutor of believers of the time to go to be a preacher, to proclaim Christ. That's amazing. I don't know about you, but if you stop to think about what God has done for you, you would see this supernatural. What God has done is amazing. That he could take a person who was dead, and make him alive to Christ. Somebody that couldn't see to somebody that could see Christ. Paul could not see Christ. He was stuck in all his religious rules. He was stuck in what he thought was right. He was stuck in himself. He couldn't see who Christ was, but he saw Christ that day. Ephesians chapter 2 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, and in, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. We were all dead. We were all against God until we were confronted with Christ. Just as Saul was confronted. And it says, We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, rich in his mercy, because of his great love in which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. God made us alive together with Christ. For by grace, you have been saved. Paul puts it another way. The now, the, the then Saul, the now Paul in Romans nine sixteen says, so then it does not depend on the man who wills. It doesn't depend on the will of man. Or on the man's exhortation, it doesn't doesn't matter how hard you work, he says, but it depends on God who has mercy on us. Salvation does not depend on the merits of good points of man's nature, but rather on God's free gift. Our salvation depends on his free gift. It was God's free gift that transformed Saul into an instrument of righteousness. From an instrument of death and destruction to an instrument of righteousness. It doesn't depend on us. What a blessing. Spurgeon said, today we have so many built up who were never pulled down. See, when, we confront, when we're confronted with Christ, did you see what happened to Paul? He was pulled down to the ground when we're confronted with Christ who we are our identity is thrown down and all we have is Christ Spurgeon said so many filled um, so many filled who were never emptied so many exalted who were never humbled that I the more earnest remind you that the Holy Ghost must convince you of sin or we cannot be saved Did you see what happened to Paul here? In verse 4, he fell to the ground. Verse 5, he realizes who Christ is. Verse 6 and 7, he's obedient to the Lord. Can you imagine? Paul didn't say, yeah, Lord, I'll accept you and I'm going to go do what I want to do. He said, yes, Lord, I can't see and I'll go to the city that you tell me to go to. Do you notice that in this instrument, look down in verse 15, it says, but the Lord said to Ananias, can you imagine poor Ananias? How would many of you like to be Ananias? That would be a nightmare dream, wouldn't it? I want you to wake up and I want you to go and I want you to witness to the greatest persecutor of the church known to man. How many of you would wake up and say, oh, that was a nightmare. I'm glad I don't have to do that. How many of us would just say, no, that's not me, Lord? Uh, can you imagine? But can you imagine Ananias? He meets Saul and he says, brother. Supernatural grace. From persecutor to brother, adopted into the family of God. But look, this must comfort Ananias, by the way. Look at verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles to carry my name before the kings to carry my name before the the, the children of Israel for I will show Saul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name the name that he once persecuted now he's going to suffer for that name can you imagine what Ananias was saying oh he's going to get his comeuppance Right? Paul, Paul, he's my hero. That guy would go in, preach the gospel, be beat up, left for dead outside of the city, get up and go preach again. Oh, I wish I had that much strength to do that. But I realize I can't. That was God's calling for Paul, for Saul, who became Paul. Can you imagine that? How many of us were confronted with Christ and come to Him in humility and say, I need you. Recognize that Jesus is Lord and obey Him as Lord. That's what Paul did. And Paul gained a spiritual insight. This is what a disciple, this confrontation of Saul with Christ is actually a list of things in a disciple's life. Paul began this typical physical, you know, this trip to Damascus, seeing in a physical sense, but spiritually blinded. And he ended up physically blinded, but seeing spiritually. That's what happens when we're confronted with Christ. We no longer see things in a physical sense, but we begin to understand things from God's point of view. What he formerly saw, he no longer saw. He no longer saw the law. What he formerly did not see, now he sees the Messiah. Did you notice that he was seeking the Lord? When Ananias found him, what was he doing? He was praying. Can you imagine this? A Pharisee who once prayed a bunch of nonsense with no relationship is now seeking the Lord in prayer in a relationship not only that but he's fellowshipping with the Lord's people the people that he sought to destroy now he's fellowshipping with the one that he now thought was an enemy is now a brother in Christ living under the power and control of the Holy Spirit doing what God says look at verse 20 and, and, and immediately proclaiming Jesus. He didn't waste any time. How is God going to add on? We've got to realize that God's grace, the gospel, God's grace, what he did for us is supernatural. We've got to realize that his instrument is, is to change us dramatically, to prepare us to be able to do what we cannot do. That's what happened to Saul, that he began to proclaim the very gospel which he wanted to destroy. In fact, in 1 Timothy 1.16, he says, My salvation, my coming to Christ was all for an example, to, to, so that way we would be patient and endure no matter what we're going through, that we would realize that God can change the chief of sinners to use as his chosen instrument. The second thing that God did to prepare for this second story to this dramatic shift in God's plan for the gospel was that God had to change some thinking. God has to change our thinking. If we are going to grow the way God wants to grow the church, we have to dramatically shift in our thinking and to get away from what we think is good and right and what we want to what does God want. God changes our thinking. Look at chapter 10, verse 9. It's when Peter finally realizes that God has changed, that God was no longer just bringing this message to the Jewish people, but he was going to prepare it for all people of all nations. And Peter's vision the next day in verse 9 of chapter 10 says, As they were on their journey, they approached the city. Peter went up to the housetops about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens opened up and something like a great sheet descended, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles, birds of the air, And they came a voice to him, "'Rise, Peter, kill and eat.' But Peter said, "'By no means, Lord, "'for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean.'" I'm a good Jew. I haven't eaten anything unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, "'What God has made clean, do not call common.'" This happened three times. And the things were taken up at once to the heaven, but while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry about Simon's house and stood at the gate. Peter had this vision, he said, and God says, look, everything is clean, which I have made clean. I want you to note something. Peter's like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to eat anything unclean. But how many times did God share with him this vision? God, Peter didn't get it the first time. Peter didn't want to get it the second time. But Peter was perplexed the third time. Did you notice that? How many times did God use to get through to Peter's head? I hope that encourages sometimes... God has to remind us multiple times, God had to change Peter's thinking, so God so that Peter would be ready to share the gospel with a Gentile. In fact, Peter goes on to say, uh, and he goes, "Do you understand that I, I shouldn't be sharing?" I shouldn't be spending time with somebody who's not a Jew. That was culturally unacceptable for a Jew to spend time with a a Gentile, with somebody from another nationality, especially a Roman. And to share the gospel with them. And Peter's like, this is not common. But listen to what he says in verse 34 of chapter 10. He says, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right and acceptable to him. As for the word that was sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit with power, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that this is the one appeared by God to judge, to judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bearing witness that everyone who believes in him, believes, that puts their faith and trust in him, receives forgiveness of sin through his name. While while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard these words and the believers were among them. The circumcised who came with Peter were amazed because the gifts of the Holy Spirit had poured out even on the Gentiles. Peter goes back to the church in chapter 11 and he proclaims, Look at what has happened. And he proclaims this and he says, look, they've received the Holy Spirit. They're saved. They were even baptized. In verse 48 of chapter 10, it says, They commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and they asked them to remain with him some days. This is amazing. Look at verse 18 of chapter 11. It says, When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. By the way, the word Gentile here in the Greek means those of other nations. God's message of grace, God's supernatural grace, His gospel that saves people was meant to go to all people. By the way, do you understand in Genesis chapter 12 that Abraham is the father of faith? That he wasn't the father of the Jewish nation? That God's intent was always to save the, the, the nations. All, people of all nations. See, we got to change our thinking. Wrong thinking is that human traditions are more important than salvation. Human traditions are more important than the gospel. Wrong thinking is that the church should consist of my kind. I've heard it so many times. Well, I, I go to this church because they're more like me. That's not why we go to church. That's not why God sent that message to Peter. The wrong thinking is that the church exists. We go to the church so that because people are like me. God changes our wrong thinking so that we can be instruments of his plan. If Peter had stuck to that protest, Lord, by no means, God couldn't have used him to preach to Cornelius. Now, by, I have no doubt that Cornelius would, would, would have gotten saved. Nothing can derail God's plan. But how, sometimes we get stuck, just like the, the Jews, and we think, oh, we're a body of Christ, and, and we get stuck in our thinking, and that this is, this is our church. No, this is not our church. This is God's church. God changes us. He wants us to seek Him, to walk with Him. God changes us by jarring us through uncomfortable circumstances. I mean, can you realize being brought up a Jew, taught never to talk to somebody else of another nationality, never to eat of anything that's unclean, never to eat any pork. That, that goes, doesn't go down at our house. We like bacon. We, we grow bacon. Apple trees are for two things. They're for apple pies and bacon. I don't know about this applesauce thing that my wife's doing, but <laughs> we like I love producing big old nice pieces of bacon. But the thing is, can you be, that was a no-no. God radically changed Peter's thinking so he'd be prepared to share the gospel. The question is, is what is God trying to do? In your mind? Is the gospel alive and well in your mind to where it would change your thinking to not focus about your church, but to focus on how are you a part of God's plan in growing the church and adding to the church? God will add to the church if we change our thinking and focus on the gospel. Sometimes adding onto the church means ripping off the roof. To change our thinking, you know, drastic things have to happen. I remember when we ripped off the side of the house and it was barren to the outside. It was like, quickly, get the roof on, get the siding on, right? And I remember we ate Christmas. We ate, I, I'll never forget, we, we had a subfloor and we, had, we, we ate in our house. We had plastic over the windows and we ate in our, in our new dining room. It was full of bare wood and bare floor and we could see outside. Praise the Lord, it was just like Humboldt County in California. It was 50 degrees outside. <laughs> Not, you know, like here in Christmas time, it wasn't freezing. God changes us by his sovereign plan. Last thing, and I just, as we close, go to chapter 12. As we close chapter 12, there's something that gets lost. But it's connected to the context of God's gospel. By the way, you remember King Herod? Evil King Herod, wanted to kill Jesus, killed a bunch of you know, killed a bunch of babies. Uh, he is like, "I'm not going to share my kingdom with anybody." He hated, hated Christians. And at the end of chapter 12, it says here in, in verse 20, it says, Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded uh, Belatus the king's uh, chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's, uh, king's country for food. And on the appointed day, Herod put out his royal robes, took the seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and he breathed his last. I like verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. God does not share his glory. God does not share his glory. And I guess as we close this morning... Have you been confronted with Christ? So much so that he is changing your thinking about life? Has he ripped the roof off of your mind and transplanted it with his plan, his gospel? Are you giving glory to Christ, to God? Or are you still focusing on your plans, your ability, your things I don't think it's a coincidence here that God showed the church in dramatic fashion that no one will steal the glory of God. Our job here is not to glorify ourselves, to glorify the name of our church, to not to glorify our ideas about this or that, but to glorify in the gospel that God made us alive through the power of the Holy Spirit, to convict our hearts, to show us that we need a Savior. That we were dead. And that God made us alive through Christ. That He transformed us. That He took out all prejudice. He took out everything. That we are all one in Christ. There is no one more important than Another. all of this stuff, there is nothing more important than Christ. That the gospel of Christ changes all men when confronted with Christ. Have you been confronted with Christ? Or are you still trying to live out your plan? Is it about you? If you're saved this morning and you've, you've come to Christ and you've You've been confronted with Christ and you've responded to Christ and you said, here I am, Lord. I need you. Save me. I believe. I trust in you. I repent. I'm a sinner. I'm dead in sin. I need you. Save me. And he has has accepted you because of, of, of responding to his call and that is you and you are still glorifying in yourself. Take heed in the fact that God does not share his glory. If we want to see this church grow, we have to glorify Christ. As believers, are you glorifying Christ or are you glorifying yourself? I Trust me, it is so hard. There are days when I just lay down and I'm just like, man, Lord, I am so wretched. I need you. And there are days when I go home and I'm like, Lord, forgive me, I've blasphemed you because I have sought glory for myself. Where are you at this morning? Where are you at this morning? If you're confronted with Christ, respond to him. If you are Saul this morning and you've been living your life for yourself and you know it and you're not saved, You knew about Christ, but you've never never had a confrontation like this. A supernatural confrontation where you know that he has saved you from your sin. Do it this morning. As we bow our heads and close our eyes, that you will repent and say, Lord, I need you. Save me. I believe in you. Will you accept me based on your gift of salvation? Will you respond to him? I challenge you: respond. If you're confronted with Christ, respond this morning. Don't wait. Be transformed by His supernatural grace, His sovereignty at work in your life. Respond to Him this morning. Lord, I just thank you for our time. Lord, if I hope you that we all realize the supernatural power in which you can build the church. If we make it about the very foundation, and that is the gospel, that you saved us from our sins, that we do not deserve anything. Lord, will you continue to work in our life and that we would make you the most important thing, that your, that identity in you will change us and conform our thinking and stop thinking more about ourselves and, and be useful in your hands. Lord, this morning, if someone's been confronted with the gospel, the good news that you died for them, you took their place, you paid for their sins, and that there is no other way to get to heaven, that being a good good person, or just being somebody who goes to church, or knowing about you is not good enough. It doesn't cut it. It didn't work for Saul. If they realize this morning that, that they're just like Saul, they, they've been trying to be a good person, and they they don't, they don't know you, that this morning that they would come to know you and be confronted with your grace and that they would give themselves to you this morning. I pray with all my heart. I plead, Lord, that you would use your spirit. Call them this morning. That they would run to you with open arms. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.